And this is probably the most defining moment of, of the defection was one of the guys bugging our house across the street was a huge hockey fan. And he personally knows that my dad's leaving like the next day, that he was not going to report or, or let the government know that we had left until Monday when he returned to work because he was a hockey fan and he wanted what was best for my dad. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Vashi Nedomansky is the son of Czech former legendary ice hockey forward Václav Nedomansky, a.k.a. Big Ned who is best known as the first ice hockey player to defect to North America to play. Vashi provides us with vivid descriptions of the 1969 Ice Hockey World Championships, where the Czech national team faced the Soviet national team for the first time since the 1968 Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. We hear a dramatic true story that combines sports, politics, espionage, corruption and life-changing events that played out on a global stage. Vashi is currently finishing a film that will reveal his father's incredible story for the first time in his own words. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. And if you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month Larger amounts are welcome too, and this will help keep us on the air. Plus, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter of the podcast, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're preserving Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So, back to today's episode. We welcome Vashi to our Cold War Conversation. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you for having me. And just so you know, I'm a big fan. I've listened to dozens and dozens of episodes, so I'm glad to participate with you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I can't can't remember how I came across this story, but as soon as I came across it, I thought we really need to get you on the show. And here we are. It all worked out. It all worked out. I don't think you've had sports featured too much in your past podcast. Only... Only football, soccer to you. Soccer to me, exactly. Um, we've we've not done ice hockey, and I probably know as much about ice hockey as I do about um, nuclear physics, to be honest. But um, I may what, need some help with some help of the fill in, fill in the blanks. Don't worry about that. It's only one piece of the story, so it's uh, it's the backdrop, as it were. Absolutely, absolutely. So you were born in Czechoslovakia during the communist period but i wanted to talk first of all about your father and your father's early life because the the story sort of centers around him initially doesn't it yeah it does it does um i was born in czechoslovakia in bratislava back in 1971 my father was born in a small village called hodonin in 1944 and that's right on the border of what is now czech republic and slovakia and so it's right in the border, and he was considered Czech because he was on that side. Um, it's a very small village. Another person of, of merit that comes from Horonin is Thomas Masaryk, who actually 
created Czechoslovakia in 1918. So my dad says he's the second most famous person from his little village. Which <laughs> well, Thomas Masaryk. Yeah, Thomas yeah. Masaryk is yep. is um, father a major historical figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't know was when Czechoslovakia was actually created, Masaryk signed that paperwork in the United States with the president at that time, and they signed the paperwork on George Washington's desk. I believe it was in wow. Washington, D.C., um, but it might have been like Philadelphia. It was an East Coast city. And I can't remember it precisely, but that's when, where they signed it and what they signed it on to create Czechoslovakia, as it were. Yeah, because it was Woodrow Wilson, I think, mm-hmm. who was the U.S. Correct. president at, at, at that time. So this this small village that, that your father was brought up in, what, what did his uh, parents do? My grandfather was a uh, a truck driver and a motorcycle racer. So when he was working in the shop, he would be repairing motorcycles and trucks for the city and for the community in that area of the country. And in his off time, he would build his own motorcycles and do these races, some of them on the ice when they would have the big spikes on the tires. Mm -hmm. And some of the other races were endurance races um, of 100 kilometers in the area. And he was the champion for, you know, 10 years in a row. He'd won every race. And these were long races. The roads were bad. There was almost like off-roading on these motorcycles and they're hundred mile loops and they would do it five times in five days. So it was quite the endurance challenge. Um, My grandmother was a seamstress and she had her own store, which was rare at that time in in the communist system to have a, your own kind of thing like that. And she would, uh, sew and hem and, and create garments for the for that city and for all sorts of people that would come through. And uh, my parents, or sorry, my grandparents and where my dad grew up, they lived in the same apartment for, I think, 60 years. And uh, that's where he grew up. And, and I was lucky enough to go visit my, my grandparents before they passed uh, back in 92 when I was playing hockey in Czechoslovakia for one year. And I went back to the same apartment, went upstairs. My, my grandmother cooked me, I believe, six meals in one day and just kept feeding me. And then we both, me and my dad, just passed out at the end of the day because she was so excited to have us both there. And she cooked every traditional Czech food you could imagine to try and yeah. make us happy. And, and I think it's important to note that back in that time, like food was almost um, not only a delicacy, but a, a rarity. My dad grew up and told me stories that there would be no meat. There might be meat once a week that they would, my grandmother would go buy a chicken or, or buy some pork or something. But during the week, my dad was like, I had bread and jam, maybe some coffee and a piece of chocolate, piece of fruit, but n- not much was available back in the fifties and sixties. And, and so when my grandmother cooked for me, it was obviously an expression of love on her part to be able to provide something that she couldn't in the past. Yeah, because uh, when at the end of World War II, um, Czechoslovakia was a democracy, but then there was a coup by the communists and they took power. In 48, yeah. In 48, they, they did their little dance, their first of many dances to take power. And um, what was interesting right before that, during the war, Hodonin was a, was a town that was right in between uh, Germany and, and Prague and, and Berlin and everything. And when the when the the Nazis invaded, when the Sudetenland was taken over and the Germans basically took over uh, Czechoslovakia, the German generals stayed in our house because they would find a place in these villages and they would take over, and we were relegated to 
uh, one small bedroom and they had the rest of the place. And then five months later, when the Russians came through, the Russian generals stayed with my my dad and my grandparents and used their their apartment or their house as a basing point to stay and do charts and to live. So they had um, uncommon invaders at all times yeah. going through their homes, which is normal at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And your, your father's schooling, what, what was that like? Presumably he was taught within the village. He was taught in the village. He did all his schooling there until he was 18 years old. Um, the only the other thing besides the, the schooling was the sports that my dad grew up playing a lot of soccer, tennis, and then hockey. Uh, my father actually helped build the hockey rink that is in Hodonin. My grandfather was also a contractor, so they slowly started building this rink from scratch, and they would have to acquire all the the pieces and parts and pipes and bricks um, pretty haphazardly. They would actually make deals or even steal bricks or take it from another village to, to slowly piece together this rink. And my dad was there when they built the first hole in the ground to put the refrigerated pipes underneath it. And he helped build this rink back in, um, I believe it was at that point, it was 1952 when they started building this rink. And it was the only rink for many villages around. And it's still standing today. And at this point today, it's been renamed Václav Nedomansky Ice Stadium, which is my father's name. So now it bears his name. Wow. Wow. That must... Uh... That must be a a real excitement when when you see that name on a you know on on the stadium. There. Yeah, on a building. Yeah, and that's where he, that's where his whole career started. And in the summertime, when there's no ice, they would use this the hockey rink to play soccer inside or even play tennis inside, just because you know the, there wasn't that many options. So they they had to make do with yeah. whatever they could. But it sounds like sports was in the Nedomansky blood what with your uh, grandfather being the uh, the motorcycle racer. He was a motorcycle racer, yeah, and he was also a very uh, very good soccer player and he introduced my father to soccer at an early age and just got him into an athletic lifestyle which you know carried over luckily. Yeah, and and why did your father decide ice hockey was where he wanted to go rather than soccer or or tennis? He had a, a a pretty preternatural just feeling for the game, and and he was always playing with older kids. He was one of the youngest and one of the smallest, even though his nickname is Big Ned. At that point, he was he started playing hockey at around age of ten or eleven, which is late for for what today players usually start at three or four years old when they start skating. So my dad started at ten or eleven, but he was always playing with older kids and. As you know, like, you know, when you play with older, bigger, faster players, you improve and increase your game quite rapidly. And he was just simply better than lots of the other kids at that point. And it, it just showed. And the coach, his coach there took a shine to him and, and helped him. And he played until he was 18 before he went to play his per- first professional season in Bratislava which was across the border in what is now Slovakia, which is the capital there. Right, right. And so he was playing then for one of the top, was that one of the higher ranked ice hockey teams in Czechoslovakia? Yeah, that, yeah, Bratislava, which which um, was the first pro team he played for. Until then, he was playing with the junior teams and he was playing with the junior national team, mm-hmm. meaning he was 16, 17, and just turning 18, he was traveling um, around, like around Europe. And he even took a trip, couple trips to North America with the team um, 
to go play against other junior clubs in Canada and, you know, all over the place. Wow. That must've been amazing for, to have a trip like that for somebody of that age and, and the, you know, the country he was in. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. It's total culture shock. He, He said that when he left at 16 for his first trip to Canada, that, which again comes in later in terms of like the colors, the vibrancy of the culture, the food, the smells, you know, everything was amplified and enhanced in in North America compared to what they had in Czechoslovakia at that time. So that was the first sniff he got at another another part of the world. And and I'm sure that's what started that planted the seed of defection later that he acted upon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what uh what year was he eighteen then? He was, that was uh, I believe sixty three, nineteen sixty three. Okay. Okay. So uh Novotny was still in power then? Yes. Yes, yes. Does he move from the Bratislava side or does he remain there? No, he moved. It was the first time he left his house in in Hodonin and he moved to Bratislava and he played on that team, which he eventually was the captain of. He played there for 12 years straight, um, including that this was the Czech Extra League. So hockey there, they have the Extra League, which is the equivalent to the National Hockey League in, let's say, North America. So it was the highest league there and he was the leading scorer, the the largest leading scorer in the history of that team. And he won, you know, several world championships is what we'll, we'll get into. Mm. And, and he was still is the leading scorer in, in Czech hockey history for that. Right. Okay. And, and so he's still playing there when Alexander Dubček comes to power. Yes, correct. He was there. He was there until 1974 in Bratislava. Right. And, and what impact does that have on him it luckily for him um in the position that he was in he was the captain of this team at that point and he was also captain of the olympic hockey team and the national hockey team at that point that's basically as good as it gets we were living in a in a two bedroom or two and a half bedroom like apartment in bratislava he was the captain of the team his salary was capped obviously um but there was nothing to buy and so money was short but there was nothing to purchase so I think that was half the reason, you know, he started looking at defection. He's like, I'm at the peak of my game, the peak of the sport, and I don't have many options and I don't have anything to really look mm-hmm. forward to. And so it was it was difficult. But the I think the athletes had it much easier than let's say a factory worker, obviously. Um one thing that the government, the communist government did was to make sure that the teams were associated with a military um, service, be it the army or, or whatever. So by this way, they could control the player's rights and also control them with, you know, different techniques of intimidation. If you're in the army and you choose to, to leave, if you go AWOL, that's considered, you know, treason, you could be put against a wall and shot. So it was an added layer of protection for the communists to keep the people in check. Mm. No, no pun intended. So did he have to do national service? Yeah, he had to do um, compulsory. I believe it was at least one year. On the books, it was two years, but I think he did one year of, of military service, and the second year was rolled into the sports team, and that was the equivalent of, in their view, you know, of serving for the army. Right, right. And and when Dubček came to power, and obviously had his policy of socialism with a human face, did your father think things were going to change for the better? Then, I think he did. I think most people did because the you know right before the Prague Spring and everything that was happening in 68 and 69, there was there was a change. There was an opening up. And my father was friends with lots of um, 
actors and and writers and playwrights. My father, you know, grew up with Milos Forman and Václav Havel, and he knew these guys and hung out with them. And and so he was exposed to some of this to their 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 obviously their films and their books that were quite revolutionary and and pretty surprising that they were created under the communist system. Like I don't know if you've seen the Fireman's Ball, Milos Forman's film, but it's it's a complete takedown of the communist system and the 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 idiocy of of everything, but com- complete satire. And it was almost not released by the Czech government because they understood what was happening <laughs> during that film, and so did everyone else. And it was you know embarrassing to them, but eventually it did get released with the help of an Italian uh, financier. Right. So so he met Harvel during that period. Yeah, they were. The, he was. He was in that same circle of artists and creative thinkers and whatnot. And um, they were always getting together for these either state affairs or, or dinners and, and everything. So he was familiar with them and continued their relationship once we got to North America with Milos Forman, for example. And when the Soviets invade on August 1968 to put down this change in policy brought in by Alexander Dubček, the leader. What, how, how did your father react to that? Um, he, it was pretty stark. I mean, obviously this happened quickly, 500, over 500,000 um, troops and, and tanks and everything came in. My dad said when he went out, in his, even in his village, there was a Russian tank with a guy with a machine gun up top. And my dad was going to get milk and eggs. Um, in, sorry, this is in Bratislava. Mm-hmm. But he was going to the store just to get milk and eggs. And the guy on top of the tank just followed him with his machine gun as he's going across the street, not knowing you know, who he is or not that it mattered. He's just going to train his guns on whoever's passing by that could be a threat. And again, to intimidate the populace. Wow. All right. And by this point, um, your father's playing for the, the Czech national team as well, isn't he? Correct. Yes, the the season in in Bratislava, which is the main team in the elite league, that season is let's say six months. In between that, they would go on international. We they would play the world world championship in the spring, and then obviously every four years they're the Olympics. So he was on all these different teams, but the same group of individuals. But he was the season was all in ten or eleven months long of training and playing you know, every year. Right. And and tell me about the, the games at the 1969 World Championships. Sure, sure. This was the first opportunity that the Czech Czechoslovakian teams got to face the Soviets at this point. Um, what a lot of people don't know is initially that World Championship, which was held in Sweden, in Stockholm, was initially meant to be held in Prague. They had already planned everything. They had printed out the posters. They printed out all the guides. <clears throat> Tickets were sold. But then they realized the Soviets realized that there's no way they could have it in Prague because the they were afraid of riots and, and everything else because it was such a sore subject that not not six months before they had invaded. So they moved the World Championship to Stockholm, a neutral site, to try and alle- alleviate some of that the, those feelings and those emotions that that are natural to a hockey game. But this game was amplified with the political swirlings around it that were occurring. Yeah, yeah. So a very incendiary tournament, and yes. Czechoslovakia ends up playing the Soviet Union. They played twice. It's a round robin tournament where you play everyone, and then if you do well, you would obviously advance, and you can face the same team again. The first game um, that the Czechoslovakians played against the Soviets, they 
the Czechs were uh, an excellent team, but the Russians were absolutely dominant in this era. I think at one point over a 10-year stretch between the 60s and 70s, they lost, I think they lost like four games total. So the Soviets were an absolute dominating force of nature. And in this first game in Stockholm, the Czechs beat the Soviets 2-0. And it was <clears throat> it was basically a bloodbath. I have a, a, ver- a video of the game and it's an extremely violent, violent game. My dad got like four penalties for slashing and spearing. And just, he said he was just trying to break his stick over their heads, which was, that was his approach to the game because all these pent up emotions, this was the first opportunity that they had to let it out. And they literally were facing off against not necessarily the individuals that invaded their country, but a representation of, of the, of that entire communist you know, Red Army Soviet machine. So this was their first chance, and they really let them have it in that first game. It's been it's been called one of like the most violent games ever ever played. Yeah, I think it's on YouTube, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a Swedish feed. There's a Swedish uh, HD feed somewhere on YouTube. Okay, well, we'll sure. make sure that that is in the uh, the show notes for for this episode. Cool. Did Did your father recall his feelings when they beat them two 0 yeah, it was. He said it was such a beautiful release for the team and for the country. I mean, at this point, everyone was rooting for Czechoslovakia. Everyone in the, in the, in the Stockholm, everyone in the fans were rooting for the Czechs. Um, we were literally David. You know, this is David and Goliath. This is little man against big man, and you could see it on their faces. I mean, the the video at the end of the game when they actually won. At the end of the game, the, everyone's celebrating. People are storming the ice. It's a really chaotic scene, and. At the end of these hockey games, usually the teams will line up and shake hands as they do in at the end of the NHL playoffs, as they do at the end of Olympic hockey games. The Czechs were so fired up and excited that they celebrated all together on a mass pile and then they just stormed off the ice without even acknowledging the Soviets. Wow. So it was they were just definitely overcome with emotion and the the feeling inside that stadium, you can hear it on the on the film. It's just absolute chaos and vindication and a release of emotion. Yeah. And were there any repercussions on the side for snubbing the Soviet team at the end of the game? Yeah, there was a couple things. For one, when after the tournament ended, the, the Czechs played the Russians one more time, beat them again four to three. But then the Czechs, exhausted and physically just damaged, they lost to Sweden in the final game. And the way they do the, the standings, it's a goals for and goals against. So you could win six games, but if you didn't score enough goals, you could still be positioned lower. So the Soviets actually finished second place and the Czechs finished third place, even though the Czechs beat the Soviets twice. So after that last game, they went to the airport to fly back and the Soviet team actually commandeered the Czech hockey team's plane and used that to fly back to Moscow. And the Czechs were given a seatless cargo plane where they had to fly back with no pressurization, no heating. And so they literally had to sit in the back of a cargo plane on their hockey bags as seats mm. and fly back to Prague. So that was one of the instant um, little things that the Soviets did just to try and, you know, that's something that they could control. And it's it's uncomfortable, but it was a message for yeah. sure. What was their reception like at the airport, Prague, when they got back? madhouse an absolute madhouse they were people lining the entire field when they came off and again there's video of this that's just really heartwarming they 
thousands and thousands of people at the airport. Thousands of people were were partying in in downtown Prague and in every city when they won. This was like the greatest moment that the Czech people had, Czechoslovakian people had at that moment to be able to best the Soviets in in some way. And that's this is the only way they could express themselves. But there were thousands of people in Václav Square, which is in the heart of Prague. They were lighting candles and lighting papers and newspapers and they were holding signs up of two zero and four three the score of the of the two games and it was an absolute madhouse and i'll I'll be able to share with you some of the videos i'll send you some links it's really inviting the other funny thing was when they got off the bus at the airport to get to the terminal the czech government had a big cake for them and there's i got pictures of this so everyone got inside this little room there's 25 huge athletes and they're all cutting this cake that was to show them, you know, as the, as the champions or, or the besters of the Soviets. So they ate cake. Right. But presumably there weren't any government representatives or Czech government representatives there because they didn't want to appear as though. Yeah, exactly. They didn't, they were, I mean, these teams, the hockey teams were always infiltrated with obviously KGB or communist spies. During all the travels, people were sent with them to make sure they didn't try and escape or, or, or run away at all times. You didn't know who to trust. My dad found out later in his life that some of his teammates that were on the, on, on the same team were ratting out people and giving information so they could get perks from the communists. So there was a, just a, you know, on, on its face, they were, the, the country was super happy that they beat the Soviets, the, the team general managers and, and trainers and coaches were all happy but it was just an outward show that you could do temporarily right you know you can embrace it but it was, it was still a very dangerous atmosphere to say the least yeah because yeah, this was because uh, dubchek was still in power in early 60 well he was still in the government in early 69 still the government but exiled and, and taken out yeah yeah so this is when Hussack comes comes to power. He's effectively installed by the Soviets, and he brings in this period called normalization. That doesn't sound very good, does it? No, it 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 doesn't. It doesn't. Um, which uh, is basically uh, removing the freedom of the press, which Dubček had brought in, and all the other reforms, and bringing it back to being a uh, quite hardline communist state but the the following year after the world championships you are born i believe i was born in 71 in bratislava where my father was playing um he was at that point i think he was like 27 28 years old and he was already for a while considering and thinking about defecting and escaping and at this point he, he had been to north america several more times for these tournaments and he had been to Japan for the Olympics. He'd been to Grenoble for another Olympics. So he definitely had a feeling and a flavor and a taste for what else was out there. The only problem was that you can't just get up and leave. And every year, my father was being approached by NHL teams um, from North America, trying to draft him and trying to purchase his rights from the Czech government. But they would always say no. They would say that's not op- not possible. This had never happened before. You know, you can't just go buy someone, which is what how it's done today, which is completely mm. normal. But back then, they could not allow for that. So he was very limited. And and the the head of his team, the general manager, he my dad went to speak with him when, after I was born, and he said, you know, I'd like to go play in North America. I'd like to do this. And they would tell him they signed paperwork that said once you turn thirty, 
we'll consider it. It shouldn't be a problem. So 30 is 30 is considered obviously older in hockey terms. Um, today with the way players maintain themselves and it's, it's a middle point in their careers, but mm. 30 back in the seventies was you know considered getting older. And so my dad having this arrangement saying, all right, if I can play three more years here, then I can leave. That sounds great. He still tried to you know, find ways to get out earlier, but that didn't materialize. And then when he turned 30, and this would be in 1974, he went in to see this GM and said, all right, I'm, I'm 30. I just finished the most successful year as a player. He was leading scorer in the league. They had won everything. And the guy took out the piece of paper and just ripped it up and threw it in the trash and said, you're not going anywhere. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Wow. Wow. So you're you're four at this time, but just uh, tell me about your mother. How how did your dad uh, meet your oh, mother? Sure. Yeah, my mother was a, an Olympic cross country skier, and I, they met at some kind of um, a, not event. I was either at the Olympics or whatever. They had crossed paths, and and she was living in Brno, which is not too far from Bratislava. It's a couple hours away, even back then. And she was still in school and college and university, and. They met, so they met at a sporting event and they continued their relationship and, and then they both moved to Bratislava, um, you know, to, to live together there when my dad was, I think, like 25, a couple of years before I was born. Right, right. And, and what, what can you remember of your time living in communist Czechoslovakia? Sure. I, I do remember, like I was going obviously to school. I remember where I was living. I remember it being very cramped and very, you know, very simple and plain and rustic. And, and I definitely remember, like, I know it's a cliche, but like these, these muted colors and this, just uh, this, this atmosphere of dread hanging everywhere. And it's, it's written on the people's faces and you could see it as they walk down the street, you know, head down, trying to be invisible. I definitely remember that sense of feeling. It's not like a boisterous, happy time for anyone. And so even though I was a small child, I, I could sense and pick up on that, that, that feeling of oppression to say the least. Right. And you were too young for school, presumably. So. Yeah, I think I was in maybe preschool or something or just running around, just running around the neighborhood. But yeah, not not up to too much yet. Yeah. So aged four, your father decides he's had enough of Czechoslovakia, particularly after this GM throwing his, uh, let's say, contract agreement. Yep. Um in the bin, and he decides he wants to defect to the West. Um, and he he chooses that he, he wants to go to Canada. What, why Canada particularly and not the US? Um, 
through back channels and through other friends that had access both in and out of Czechoslovakia at the time, he had been speaking to some of the NHL teams. And there was a, a new league that had just started in the early 70s called the WHA, which is the World Hockey Association. And this was based, there were a lot of these teams were based in Canada and they were an upstart league and they had a lot of money, which is they were trying to lure the best players in the National Hockey League to go to that league. And they were very successful. They got word to my father with a proposal of a five-year contract for, I believe, like $750,000, which was an enormous sum back then. And when he heard that this offer was on the table, my dad said, I'd like to sign this. And the only problem was this is back before they would like a spy movie. They'd go into the communist countries and steal a player and put him in the back of a trunk and drive him out at night, you know, with guns mm-hmm. blazing. This was a time when the player had to get out and himself and the teams all said, we have a contract waiting for you. If you can defect, we will give you this deal. You'll, you, we can sign it now, but we can't be part of this actual extraction or defection. So my dad had to take it upon himself to find a way to escape and to defect, knowing that there was a deal on the other side. The other thing of why Canada was the NHL had a deal with the International Hockey Federation where there was an 18-month like penalty. If you are playing in Europe and you come out of Europe, you have to wait 18 months to play in the NHL. You can't go directly into it. So the agreement with Toronto that my dad made – in the WHA allowed for him to play right away. So that was a huge deciding factor, knowing that if he can escape, he could start playing literally in a couple months when the season started. The NHL wasn't an option at that point. Right, right. And when when did they tell you that this was the plan? From my memory, it was literally a couple days before we were leaving. Um, the whole procedure of our defection is an interesting tale that I'll, I'll, I'll try and break down. Um, as I know it and as I've been told. Um, but I was told a couple of days before that we we're going to Canada. And my response was to go outside and dance around and start screaming and yelling, Canada, 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 which in a communist <laughs> village or city is not a very good idea for a yeah. child to be running around doing that. So they had to, you know, I think they kept it for me as, as far as they could. I remember being told that we were leaving at one point, that we're leaving and not coming back. Um, which is a quite striking thing for a four-year-old to hear. Um, it, may, it doesn't even register, you know, at some point. I had such a small semblance of what reality was at, at any point, but knowing that we were leaving somewhere good was the only thing I knew. Um, and if you want, I can get into the actual defection because it is a really, really sneaky turn of yeah. events. Well, um, let me let me just start. I just want to ask yeah. you a little bit before sure. about that. So. Were your parents under surveillance? Because I presume the STB would have thought that this was likely. Oh, yes. We have, um, as of about five or six years ago, the Czech government released all the secret police files um, back to the public where you would have to go sign in and you can actually see all the paperwork and all the reports about individuals. And I got all those paperworks for the documentary that I'm working on about my father called Big Net. So I have copies of all these documents that detailed all the surveillance, which included on foot, in cars. And I have hundreds and hundreds of reports filed of where my parents are going, what they're doing, who they're talking to, how long they're out of the house, like every step of the way of, of being 
followed and trailed. And my father was the captain of the national team. And so he was a high profile person in Czechoslovakia. And, and he had made these indications that he wanted to go out of the country. So he was definitely under surveillance. One of the most amazing things we found out after the fact was that the apartment across the street from us had a, a team of um, tappers or people that had microphones in our house that they were recording our place the whole time. So our, our apartment was bugged and they were recording everything across the street and, and filing these reports. And my dad said that had been going on for you know at least a year or two. Wow. Wow. And did your parents suspect that that was going on or did they, I presumably they knew they were being watched, but did they think that the apartment was bugged? They didn't know the apartment was bugged. The reason, the way they found out was, and this is probably the most defining moment of, of the defection before we even defected was one of the guys bugging our house across the street was a huge hockey fan. And two days before my father defected or we all defected, this guy told my dad that he that he's been bugging the house and that he personally knows that my dad's leaving like the next day. And this was on a Friday. And our plan of escape, which I'll get into, involved some timing. We left on a Friday um, because the weekend things were closed and we had a little larger window to, to get out. But this mm-hmm. guy that was bugging our place told us on Friday that he was not going to report or, or let the government know that we had left until Monday when he returned to work because he was a hockey fan and he wanted what was best for my dad. So this guy gave us a three-day window when he could have on Friday just called and says, oh, they're defecting. Take, come get them. Wow. So can you wow. imagine that? Like that My dad found that out after. Yeah. What a stroke of luck to have an ice hockey fan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in apartment. the apartment. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Can you remember saying goodbye to your grandparents? Um, my my parents couldn't tell their grandparents that they were oh, leaving. Wow. They literally didn't tell anyone because um, they were worried about, first of all, how to communicate that to the grandparents. If, obviously, you couldn't call. If you left a letter, our letters were being opened, so we couldn't do that. We could only tell them in person. But my parents, I believe, were really concerned about the emotional impact I would have at the moment to the grandparents, and their response might not be optimal for our plan at that point. So they couldn't tell anyone, and they definitely couldn't tell their parents. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, so what, what was the methodology uh, used for the uh, defection? Okay, so the one thing that these the hockey players – had going for them was that their their season was 11 months long and then they had a one month break where they did not have to report to the team or do the training or anything like that and every player was granted basically a two-week vacation where they could go to the black sea or other countries my dad got a pass to go to switzerland to zurich and innsbruck which was approved um but still they were they would be followed, they would be surveilled, even though they're outside the country. Um, when my dad realized that, he had to figure out some way to get passports for us to get out of the country. To, once we were in Switzerland, we would have to try and escape. Now, back in those days, the police department kept your passports at your city that you lived in so that there was no way you, you didn't have it. If you had a travel pass, you would go to the police station, get your passport, 
go on your trip, come back, give that passport back to the police. Now, the hockey players had another passport that was kept at the hockey rink for their travels international. So there were two passports. Um, my dad first tried to get that passport from the hockey rink, thinking that would be the easiest way, but that was closed off, locked down, and there was no chance. So what my dad did was the only other time you can get your passport from the police was if you're moving to another city. So my dad and my mom said that they were moving to Brno, where she was born, which was three or four hours away. So we went to the police station, got our passports, and said that, you know, we're moving to Brno. We need to take our passports. And that's how they got the passports. At that point, they went to the border, and they had the paperwork for the, for the pass to get out for a, a vacation. And the guy that was bugging us did not report us yet. So there was no issue on the, on the actual leaving through the gate into, into Switzerland. That was allowed. But they were followed at that point anyways, separate from the investigation and the bugging because the government didn't know for sure we were defecting and they thought we were going to Brno. So there was a, an air of, of confusion that was pre-planned and this was happening on that Friday. And over the weekend, a lot of the government offices are obviously shut down. So it gives you a better window to at least get outside the country, which was the step number one, first get out of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we literally, in a, in a small Citroën two-seater, we drove across the border into Switzerland as, as part one of the defection. Yeah. Into Austria, I presume. Into Austria first, yes. Into yeah. Austria first, and yeah. then, then to Switzerland after that. Um, once we got out into Austria, my dad met with a, a couple other Czech people that were already out to try and get some updates, to try and get some scoops, to try and let the the Canadian hockey team know that that step one, we were out and, um, and we had, you know, three or four days where we had to wait to try and get a flight and try and get a visa to go to North America. And that was all done on the run and, and very sneakily um, because at this point we were being followed by Czech agents. And by Monday, they knew that we had gotten out and we knew that we, they knew that we had no plans on returning back to the, back to Czechoslovakia. Right, right. Because I'm, I'm surprised that they let the whole family leave on holiday like yeah, that no. to, to outside of the country. Um, yeah. But you know, I always subscribe. I always subscribe to the school of uh, cock up theory. <laughs> Something definitely happened. There definitely was a, a, a chink in the fence in terms of their thinking, um, and, and so we got super lucky that way. But. Getting the passports was huge because leaving without passports, we literally would have been stuck in Austria or Switzerland, you know, and we would have to have gone back or, or something worse had happened. But even at the point that we approached the airport, you know, three or four days later after we got out of the country, we were still being followed by, by, by communist spies. They were at the airport. They were tracking the airport, waiting for us to arrive. They were following us from hotel to hotel, you know, trying to keep tabs on us. My dad's friends were running diversions. And it got to the point that even at the airport, we flew out of Bern to go to North America. They had agents at the airport. And the funny thing is my dad had friends that were helping interfere and stuff. These agents really stood out. They had the worst suits, the worst haircuts. They, you know, in, <laughs> they stood out as communist spies. So they're easy to spot, you know. And we, they did have to run interference to try and keep them from physically grabbing us at the airport and hauling us out of there. Wow. Wow. So you managed to get on the, the plane at, at Bern. Can you describe what your 
first view of Canada was like? Yeah, no, I, I remember my dad told me that it was a jumbo jet. I think it was Swiss Air. We flew from Bern to uh, Montreal. We landed first in Montreal. My dad said I basically ran up and down the aisles the entire flight, um, waving a little Canadian flag and just running around like a maniac for, I don't know, seven hours, eight hours. He says, you I must have been so in- popular on that plane. I was the <laughs> most hated child on the planet at that moment. But my dad said that literally five minutes before we landed, I fell asleep in his lap and I think I wetted myself. So that was the ultimate, ultimate outcome of my arrival into North America, wet pants and, and, and sleeping. That's the sort of detail we like on Cold War Conversations, Vashi. I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us. Of course. <laughs> it's an important component of the story, and it happened. So why not? I was just overexcited as one would yeah. be. And I remember landing and coming off, and there was just a gaggle of press, just paparazzi and cameras and, and flashes and music and everything going off as, as we came off the plane. Um, one of my dad's friends at that time was George Gross, who ran the, one of the big newspapers in Toronto. And my dad had tipped him off that he was arriving. So he had his press crew in Montreal, and then eventually other people found out that the flight was arriving. So it was a huge event at that time. This was like the largest affection of an athlete in, in many, many years. And um, funnily enough, Baryshnikov, the Russian um, ballet dancer, had defected not two months prior and came through Canada as well. So it was right. uh, a time of defections and a time of chaos. Right. And Gross himself was a defector from Czechoslovakia as well, wasn't he? He, he was. He was actually Slovakian, and his mode of defection was he was on a kayak team, and he was training <laughs> with his kayak, and he just kayaked across the river while being shot at in his kayak to get over to Austria as well. I believe he escaped through Brat- through Bratislava in the water and just kayaked across the river in the middle wow. of his training to get away. Wow, that's a great. Yeah, that's a great. It makes your story sound slightly less dramatic now. But oh, uh, no, no, no. let's cut out George's story. Let's stick with our story. <laughs> um, so, once you've got through the gaggle of the press, are you put up in a hotel, or, or where 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 do you end up? At that point, the owner of the team was a man by the name of John Bassett, and he was a very wealthy investor and business owner in Toronto. And once we got to Toronto, we actually stayed at his house for the first month or two. And one of his daughters was Carling Bassett, who was a famous tennis player. And so I just bunked with his daughters and we just ended up playing tennis every day and just relaxing and waiting for the season to start, which would this was in July and the season would start in you know, early September. So we had about six weeks of trying to get used to North America and, and signing the paperwork and figuring out our lives and all that stuff at once. Um, the first thing we did before the season started is we got an apartment in Toronto. And at that point, we started getting phone calls from the Czech government and from spies and everything telling us that if we came back now, then everything will be okay. That, <laughs> that Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So they would they would leave notes at our house. They would call us with these messages. They were threatening, you know, our my grandparents, you know, not even subtly, but just with straight threats that bad things would happen if we don't come back. And so this was ongoing, and it was obviously very sore. My parents didn't couldn't still couldn't inform their grandparents. They tried to call, but the calls would get disconnected before it even went through. 
My dad said he sent letters back home to, to the, his parents and they said they never received it. The press in Czechoslovakia wouldn't allow for this, this story to even get out. Like they were actually denying the fact that he escaped. When my dad played his first game in the World Hockey Association, um, this was still not common knowledge in, in, in Europe. And when they played, the, the Czechoslovakians sent a team to play against these teams as, as part of their training. When they played against the Czech team, the Czech teams thought he was dead. The Czech government had said, my dad had died in a car crash and was no longer living. That was their story for what happened to us in the eyes wow. of the Czech people. So the Czech players, they saw him. They're like, we thought you were dead. Like they had no idea. And the Czech team refused to play because unless my dad was removed from the team, they said, we are not going to play against him. But because the, the North American team was funding the Czechs tour, they said, well, then you're not going to get paid for the game. And then the, the Czechs said, okay, we'll play. That's fine. Yeah. We'll, we'll play. Yeah. Welcome to capitalism. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so when, when was your father able to speak to his parents or, or contact them? What, what year was that? Yeah, from everything I've been told with my, with my father, we escaped in obviously '74. Um, he said my grandfather said later he did get a letter or two, but he my dad didn't speak to my his parents for I think eight years, nine years. Wow. The next time my dad spoke to his father was in 1981, when the Czechoslovakian government let my grandfather come to North America because he was dying of cancer. Had lung cancer, and he came and stayed with us for a week before going back to Czechoslovakia and then passing away maybe three months later. Wow. So there was at least an act of compassion on their part to let him out. But, yeah. you know, it, this was 81, so this was you know, further down the yeah. road. Yeah, it's, their, it's interesting that they, yeah, that they did show that compassion, yeah. Um, yeah. albeit, you know, too late. And your, your father was from what I understand, effectively airbrushed out of Czechoslovak ice hockey history. Yeah. I mean, it, this is like pre-Photoshop. I know Stalin was doing it. I know some of the <laughs> other, they were very good at pre-Photoshopping photos to change them to uh, make it a, a better picture of what the communists wanted. But at, when, when my dad left, he was the leading scorer in the history of Czechoslovakian hockey. So they, the books were taken out of the libraries. The lists were redone. He was taken off number one, and then number two was now number one, and everyone bumped up a slot. And in the photographs from the teams, he was literally airbrushed out. He was removed from history. And it was also foreboding to even say his name, because by saying his name, you're, you're talking about a, a really a black mark on, on the way that they ran the country and the fact that he got out. And such a high-profile defection was something that they were terrified of, and people were getting in trouble just by mentioning his name. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how did your father get on with uh, playing in North America? Was it, I'm presuming it was a similar standard to Czechoslovakia, but he, he had a successful career. Did he? He had a really successful career, even though he came over at the age of 30, which again was considered older. He played until he was 39. He was very, very successful in the NHL and in the WHA. Um, He was actually inducted into the hockey hall of fame, six months ago in this year's class and only the second Czechoslovakian ever to be inducted in the hall of fame in the last hundred years. And there's only 250 people in the hockey hall of fame. And a lot of people think that the hockey hall of fame, you have to just play only in the NHL, but obviously it's a 
culmination of, of your achievements and your accomplishments. And because my father was the first hockey player to defect and play in the NHL, it was, you know, a turning point. And when he, def- when we defected in 1974, there was not another defection for five years into, for hockey players. So they really cracked down after he defected. They were really embarrassed and, and, you know, put in a bad light. The communists were, so they really locked it down. But my father was the first and he got the highest acknowledgement and, and award in terms of his career and the impact it had on the sport in, by opening up the game. Because right now, back then, he was the only European in the, in the game, in the sport, obviously from a communist country. And the, the teams were 95% Canadian or US. There were maybe three Swedes, two Finns, and my dad in, in all of hockey that were not from North America. And the, that kind of composure now the teams are now split. They're half and half, half North American, half European. Mm. So over the last you know 30 years, the, the game has changed and the, the skills and the different styles of the European players are integral to the sport of hockey now. But it started you know back then when my dad defected. Yeah. Not many Brits in ice hockey, are there? Not too many, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Not our, not our strongest sport, that one. <laughs> Now, when he left, did his family get punished at all or was it just threats? When we left, they definitely, my dad told me later that my mom lost a lot of her work, that it was encouraged not to visit the Netomansky seamstress. Um, the Monday after we left, the cops and the government came to our house and just took all our belongings, took everything. And once they left, then the neighbors and everyone else came and cleaned up and took whatever was left over. And we're talking everything from tables to chairs to beds to everything else. Because if you think about it, we left with the impression of we're going on a vacation. We took three suitcases. And my dad said one of the suitcases was full of toys to keep me busy and keep me from wetting myself. So unsuccessful on that one. But we left with three suitcases and everything else was left in our apartment as if we were leaving for a vacation. So once we were out, they literally came in and just cleaned out our place, took all our belongings and everything else. And definitely made it uh, not easy on, on my grandparents in, in any way they could. And I mm-hmm. believe the lack of communication is probably the, the, the deepest dagger you could stab someone with if you have no idea of the whereabouts, the health, or even if they're alive. So breaking that communication between families is extremely hurtful. Yeah, yeah. And I, I understand that one of the prizes that your father won in a particular match was quite formative in your future career. Yes, yeah. In, in, one, of the, uh, in one of the games in, when my dad was playing in Detroit, we had moved from Toronto to Birmingham, Alabama for a year or, or a year and a half when the team was moved. And then my father signed with the Detroit Red Wings in the National Hockey League where he played for another six years after that. But during one of the games in, De- in Detroit, he was the first star of the game. And this is 1982, for example, uh, right in there. His prize was a VHS camera and a VHS um, tape deck that attached to it. So as you can imagine, if you've seen in that era, these are large, large pieces of electronics. Oh, yeah, They're I remember them. <laughs> shoulder-mounted camera that weighed like 15 pounds, and the VHS that attached to it was on a, on a side bag that you had to strap to your body. And my dad came home with this and said, here, you take this, do something with it. I don't know what to do with it. So I was charged with filming, you know, holidays, filming birthdays, filming family events. And I was 12 years old running around with this huge camera that could only record for maybe 
at 45 minutes before the battery died. So I had to be very selective and I would just start filming things. And, and when I got home, I would look at what I shot and I would say that, all right, I wish I could change the order of some of these events that I shot so I could, you know, edit. Mm-hmm. I realized I had another VHS at home and I understood that if I connected one VHS to the other one, I could play what I wanted on one tape, tape deck and then hit record exactly when I wanted that to be on a second tape. And so then I could fast forward, rewind and com- compose a narrative of shots in the order that I wanted, which is obviously the definition of editing. And my career now is I'm a film editor in Hollywood for the last 20 years. And that was the first time I edited out of necessity when I was 12 years old. Right. Wow. Real old school video yes. editing. Um, uh, but you you played ice hockey yourself, though, didn't you? I played professionally for 10 years. I was with the New York Islanders and Los Angeles Kings organizations, spent most of my time in the minor leagues. But I played from um, yeah 10 years from like early 90s to early 2000s. And uh, I had a wonderful career. I loved loved the game. I got to travel to 48 of the states in, in North America and in the United States. I went to Europe to play. So I had a great time playing hockey. And um, funny story was one of my first professional hockey games was in, I think, 92, 1992. I was playing in Memphis somewhere. I came on the ice and obviously I have Nedimanski on my back. And I'm going around the rink in the warm-up. And one of the opposing fans yelled, Nedimanski, you old shit, get off the ice. Let the young guys play. They thought it was, <laughs> it was my dad. Brilliant. Brilliant. And they, they're holding up signs like better dead than Ned, you know, and like oh, trying to make, make a God. ploy on the better dead than red. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. So I would hear all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And same with my dad. When my dad was playing, you have to understand, he was an oddity in terms of he didn't speak very good English yet. All the other players, he was taking a job from a North American, right? And mm. so even on his own teams, there was some bad feelings of who's this commie? Is he a spy? They would just call him commie. Hey, what's up, you commie? And let's like, the most hurtful thing you could do to someone who's defected from a system and from a society, you know, and they're just calling him commie because they didn't know what he was. Yeah. So much harder for him than for me in terms of all that stuff. And it was a much yeah. rougher game in the seventies as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause you share the f- same first name as him as well. Don't you? I'm the same. My grandfather, my father, and myself, were all Václav Nedimansky. And the youngest one is called Vashiku. And so I, Vashi is just the diminutive of that. So if there's three of us around, you know who's who, who's talking to who. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could get very confusing. But you played in, uh, uh, was it Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic as well? Yeah, I went back one of my, one of my second years, and that was the first time I had gone back after defecting in 1974. So I went back and I played in Litvinov, which is just north of Prague, in a very uh, famous team. And my coach was Ivan Hlinka, who was another famous Czechoslovakian hockey player and a teammate of my dad. So I got to go back to Czech to see where I was born. You know, At this point, I was 22 years old. So I'd been gone for 18 years. And I got to meet my father's friend, play for him. I got to travel through Czechoslovakia at this point. And visit my grandmother and visit where I was born and make the tour, you know, during that year. And that was really an amazing experience for me to be able to go back and, and see it with an adult's eyes and to reconnect with family members that I hadn't seen in 20 years almost. That must have been quite an emotional experience. Definitely, definitely, definitely it was. And um, I definitely cherish that. I mean, after the Velvet Revolution, so many revolutions in, in Czechoslovakia, there, all these things going on. But after the Velvet Revolution, you know, 89, 
and going back, it was um, interesting to see because obviously the capitalism had rooted itself into Eastern Europe at this point, and you could get McDonald's and KFC and Nikes and Levi's everywhere you wanted, and they're just playing Rage Against the Machine in the streets, and it was definitely an eye-opening time. You know, obviously carrying that name as well must have, um, you know, because even though your father had been airbrushed out of Czech ice hockey history, people will have still remembered him and and the feats and especially that 1969 game. Yeah, he was, he's still one of the most popular, you know, players in in Czechoslovakia even at this point. And um, with his induction in the Hall of Fame, it just adds another layer on top of that. But funny story about this, um, my dad was actually... At the time I was playing in 1993 in Czech, he was a scout for the Los Angeles Kings. He was a European scout. So he was living in Prague for a couple of years, scouting the next generation of players. And he had a deal with Škoda, the car company. Um, so he had a car that was given to him with his name on the side. So he was a promote, <laughs> promoting the car. His car got broken into like 12 times because they saw the name and they're like, oh, there's going to be something good in this car. Let's yeah. break in. So they kept breaking into his car. Um, and then when I was playing in Litvinov, Škoda gave me a car. So I had a car with my name on it, same name on the side of the car for the, you know, for the year that I was mm-hmm. there. So, which is not good everywhere I went, everyone knew where I was. So I had no, no privacy and no anonymity. Yeah. You know? So yeah. if I go to a restaurant or anywhere, you know, oh, there's, yeah. there's Vachi. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you've made a film about your father's story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just finishing it. Um, it's called Big Ned. It's a documentary about this journey, but more importantly, it's a, it's a look at a comparison of communism and capitalism and how not only is one not better than the other in terms of an overall effect on my dad's life, because in the communist system, he was at the peak of what an individual in the public eye could do living in a two bedroom apartment and being the captain of a national team, you're capped with your salary. You have no money. You would think that's terrible. And and it was very limiting, but when he escaped, you would, you would think that Someone who is who defects goes to play hockey in North America. Everything's gravy, and you just make a lot of money, and everything's super. Well, my dad was adversely affected by capitalist system in terms of his agent was one of the most nefarious and sneaky people on the planet by the name of Alan Eagleson, and he just stole millions of dollars from my dad and from many other hockey players. Um, and so, my dad was affected by the capitalist system as well in terms of losing what you thought was yours through various legal means, you know, legally getting taken for a ride. So the film kind of just showcases both sides of the iron curtain and the adventures, both good and bad along the way. And the hockey is actually a backdrop. It's just something that helped him get across the ocean, but was definitely not the biggest part of the story as the tale goes. Right. It it sounds a really interesting film and I've seen the uh, trailer on Vimeo and yep. uh, it's definitely whetted my appetite. When's it likely to be ready, and, and how would people be able to view it? I'm in negotiations right now with several distributors. The, the Actually, the largest challenge I'm having is, is getting the rights to the footage. I have all the footage, but the NHL has a very uh, strict policy of you know every second of 
film that has one of the NHL teams on it is X amount to to license it. So I'm looking at almost six figures to license the footage of my father in in our own film. And that's wow. a le- legal challenge I have to overcome before I can sell the film. Um, the film's just about done already, so I can show it privately, but I obviously can't show it publicly yeah. without breaking those rules. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's certainly an intriguing story and a a moving story as well in, in more ways than one. You know, hearing the story of, you know, having to leave the grandparents behind and the, the different emotions that, that flow around in, in a situation like that. And then to, as you've described, for him to move to the US and then be done over effectively by people within the capitalist system as, as as well but how is your father nowadays good good he he lives in in california just outside of los angeles here where i live and he um he actually had a about seven years ago he found he had colon cancer and he had uh surgery and some definite really hard challenges with chemo and and the recovery but he's healthy as a horse right now everything's fine he's been clean for about seven years and He's right now just enjoying some downtime. Um, he had worked in the NHL as a scout for 25 years after he retired. So he's remained in the game. He's been integral in, in creating some teams. He was one of the architects of the Las Vegas Golden Knights team, which was a new team that came to the league two years ago. So he was there before that team started, helped form that team, helped pick the players for that team. And you know, Vegas is a, is a crazy place for a hockey team. It's a crazy place for any team, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I have seen one ice hockey match in the US and it was probably in the 80s. It was the LA Kings Kings, yeah. Kings and Wayne Gretzky was playing. Then you saw probably my father. He was with that team at that time. He was with the Kings for 17 years, including that late 80s, early 90s when Gretzky was here in LA. Wow, so he was probably in the building at some point. Wow, what a what an amazing, uh, a good timing uh, on your part. Link, link there. I never expected that answer. Nice. Um, I was going to say it's my absolute pleasure to share, share the story. This is actually the most I've talked about this outside the film because obviously you can imagine some of these turning points in and in, in the historical component and the sneakery I haven't even discussed. And what's really been interesting is that my father, after that cancer scare really wanted to do the documentary at that point because I'd been asking to do it for a while, but he's very private person. He's very old school. And, and like coming from a communist society, you're told to hold on to your secrets and not share. And the more you talk, the more you can get in trouble. So yeah, this whole, whole process of, of creating this film with my father, I've learned and filled in so many of the pieces over the last you know 25 years that I didn't know because they were never discussed. And I finally got to learn about our defection and then the trials and tribulations on both sides of the ocean. And hopefully we'll be able to present that in a, in a concise and engaging narrative format, you know, and let everyone else peek into that little window. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And does, does your father speak in the film? Is he, is he interviewed by you in the film? Yeah. What I decided to do with this film, which is I personally, I'm not a fan of, of, big head narratives where you, you know, the last thing I want to do is start this film with my dad at 75 years old, sitting in a chair saying, let me tell you a story. When I was born, <laughs> I was born in Hodonjin. And then I played, no, I, I said, yeah, this you, you mean the route I went with the podcast? <laughs> no, no, this is completely no, I'm, I'm only kidding you. <laughs> I know, I know. So the, the format of the film is the entire film is archival footage 
And um, I have hundreds of hours of footage from both Czechoslovakia, from their archives, from the NHL, from the WHA that I've found. I went to the Hockey Hall of Fame about five years ago. They had hundreds of hours of 16 millimeter film on their shelves that were either unmarked or unviewed in 40 years. So with a team of archivists, we went through all the film and found anything that had my father in it, then had to have that scanned at at a lab into 4K and 5K. So I had digital files. Then I returned the film to the Hall of Fame. So the entire film is archival footage that basically no one's ever seen. Um, I have interviewed, obviously, my father for dozens of hours. And there is a, a narrative where he speaks throughout the film, but you, he's not on camera until basically the end of the film. I wanted yeah. to transport the people back into that era through the use of music, the words, the the images, the the motion pictures and the films and the photographs of that time and kept kept it all in that era so it's like you're just stepping back into time and you're not seeing the older version of anyone who speaks on camera you're seeing the current version of them at that time and we have further photos videos and information on this episode in our show notes which will show as a link in your podcast app don't forget if you'd like to get one of those cold war conversations coasters help keep us on the air then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information